Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello, my name is Nathan Cornish Raley, and I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people. During season three of Speak Up, we aired an episode on unpacking the results of the Self 5, which became one of the most listened to episodes in the podcast history. In that episode, Angela Kinsella from Pearson spoke about administering and interpreting this commonly used assessment tool. So we've invited Angela back to discuss the updated Self Preschool 3 Australia New Zealand edition and how this assessment might be positioned in an evidence-based and responsive evaluation process. So thank you for joining me today, Angela. Thank you for having me, Nathan. It's wonderful to be back. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, To get us started, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work role? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Nathan. So I'm Angela Kinsella, and I'm a pediatric speech pathologist. I have been part of the Pearson team since 2006, so a long time. Um, So I've got to know and love a lot of our members today, so that's lovely. Uh, We're growing old together is is our little in-house joke here at um, the long timers at Pearson. Um, My role at Pearson has morphed a bit. So traditionally, I was your go-to person for anything speech and language, and I would help our or your members and Pearson's customers choose the right assessment, understand the results, and really unpack those, especially with the trickier clients or patients that the speeches work with. Um, more recently, um, as recent as January, what's happened is our consultants now look after different regions. So I look after the education portfolio, so anything school-related, anything uni-related for WA, Victoria, South Australia, Northern Territory, and ACT. So if you do sometimes get hold of Claire, who's our OT or our Sykes, um, that's the reason. But of course, I'm still in the background. So you can reach out to me via our new consultant contacts as well. That's a bit of a role change. Thank you for letting us know uh, about that that change and where speech pathologists can reach out to to get support. Uh, I'd like to uh, jump into talking about the Self Preschool 3. So can you tell us about some of the updates from the Self Preschool 2 um, and why these updates were made in the new edition? Absolutely. So those who are super users of the Self Preschool 2 and have transitioned to the Preschool 3 would know it's a very similar look and feel to the Self Preschool 2, but there are some new updates. Of course, the biggest and most important are the updated norms because the Self Preschool 2 norms were collected in 2000. So that's a long, long time. So it's important that if you haven't transitioned to the Preschool 3 that you do so purely because those norms are way too old now. Um, We've got rid of the calculator, no more stamps, no more newspaper. So there are some nice updated test items, which is, I know has been very well received by the speechy community. We also have new digital test administration options uh, via QGlobal and QInteractive and CoView, and that lends itself to being flexible in terms of face-to-face administration versus telepractice. We've got new supplemental subtests, 
The main one that I love is the connected speech sample, and we will cover that in a bit more detail, as well as the pragmatics activity checklist. We have two new index scores, and those are the academic language index and the emergency literally index scores. And of course, for the first time, we have a standalone screening assessment. Hey, so those are some big changes. Um, I'm interested in the norming population uh, or the standardization sample that was used. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Uh, that was uh, normed here in Australia and New Zealand, correct? Yes, we always get very excited if we have local norms. So of course, we have a stratified sample based on the general population. So that's important when we're working with students, we need to make sure that they are represented in the sample. Um, I have done a one-hour overview, so those are all the boring bits <laughs> of the big changes, and I do drill down into the normative data collection. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that webinar, please do find it on the Pearson Clinical YouTube channel. Simply search for Self Preschool 3, and that'll come up. It is long. It does take just over an hour, but I always say you can watch it in double time to, to get the gist of it. But it is, if you're new to the Self Preschool 3, it's important that you listen and understand those fundamentals and then from there we can just layer our administration and interpretation. It really gives us a good fundamental understanding of those changes and what's important to understand about that normative data especially when we're working with a student who might not actually be represented in that data. For example, a student from a non-English speaking background. If somebody is, you know, considering what assessment they should use um, for an individual, like what, what considerations would a speech pathologist make when deciding whether to use the self preschool three or another assessment like the PLS five? Um, so great question. Thank you, Nathan. And before I drill down into those specific assessments, I know we know this, but it's a timely reminder of when we're looking at this assessment process to remember that it is in fact a process and we need to gather data from different data points and that really is critical. That process is ongoing and it takes time but at the end of the day if we put that time and effort into collecting as much information about that student as possible everyone is going to be better off for that process. So of course we're talking to parents, we're talking to teachers, we're observing the student in their different environments being the classroom, the playground, the home environment and anything else where they have an interest. So if they, you know, they have a love of sport, for example, get out there on the sport field, see how they interact. We really want to glean as much information. Um, we want to talk to other professionals if other professionals are involved. We want to get the academic history, their medical history, their developmental history. And then we want to look at dynamic assessment, of course. There is a place for that. But then we look at our standardized assessment. So if we've done all that and we're deciding, okay, shall we go preschool three, self-preschool three, or the PLS five, um, Lots to consider, but two main guidelines to keep at the back of and um, to hold in mind is the PLS5 is really a lovely, nice play-based assessment, and it really gives us information about the child's general communication development. Really for students who have significant difficulties in language and other areas, in development, for example, and generally they're nonverbal or they have limited 
spoken words and they're not speaking in sentences. The PLS5 is a very engaging assessment. So is the preschool three, of course, but it's a little bit more structured and we really need the child to be able to sit quite still for a chunk of time for at least 45 minutes and attend to those stimulus. Um, if I may say at this point, Nathan, for our PLS5 users, um, it well, with any assessment, we want to get the best possible performance out of that student. And why I love the PLS5 for our really young students or students who have limited words or limited sentence structure, as you get down on the floor with them, you pack out all the manipulatives or the toys and you play with them. And it really is intuitive. We know as speech is the next item that's going to come up and what we're looking for in terms of the developmental communication skills. Um, and so much so, to remember to remind the parents that you are, in fact, following a structure because a lot of the time I've done the assessments and the parents are like, oh, you just played with them for 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> so I've learned to to remember to show the parents the record form and say, we've got a structure, but I just want to make it as relaxed as possible and really mimic their learning and communication environment. Um, the other thing to remember the PLS5 is you, you is you can group those items that require the manipulatives versus those that require the stimulus book. Then it's an easy transition from those kind of play-based, more relaxed items to the more formalized structure where you where the student is engaging with the stimulus book, for example. Um, also, keep that in mind, if a child is easily distracted by toys, we might want to try and engage them with the stimulus items first and then transition them to the toys and then, then we can end the assessment using the manipulatives. Because I've also found that if we're so engaged with the toys, it can be trickier <laughs> to then transition them to mm. sit down and look at something more structured like the stimulus book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I having administered the PLS a number of times, I, I just think as a practitioner, it makes it a bit easier for your own management of the environment to be keeping track of a, you know, a set group of tools at any given time. So that's great advice. Thank you. Uh, you've mentioned how a, a test like the Self Preschool 3 is one data point amongst a robust evaluation procedure. Um, and I think that's especially important to keep in mind when we are working with individuals who speak minoritized Englishes or speak languages other than English. And um, it, it's always been important to use assessment practices that are culturally and linguistically responsive. Uh, and there's growing examination of the role that some speech pathology practices and standardized assessment can play in misidentification and othering those who don't communicate in standard Englishes. So uh, can you talk a bit more about where the self preschool three would fit into a complete assessment battery for, like we said, a child who speaks a minoritized English or a language other than English? 
Yeah, and that's a good point. Always remember to refer to the manuals, and this is true for the cell five as, as well, is we have sections around culturally, linguistically diverse populations and considerations for those. So when we're learning a new assessment or choosing an assessment, always remember to have the manual next to you, reflect on those I'm not expecting you to read it from cover to cover, but pull out those chapters or the sections of the manual that are important for the student that we're working with. Um, and also reflect on the standardized sample population. And as I said, we want to make sure that the student we're working with is represented in that sample. Why is that so important? Because we want to know and understand that the that the student um, is going to perform and do um, what is expected of that test. So if they're not represented in, represented in that sample, then we a we can't really use the norms at all because we're going to get a skewed result. And as Nathan, as you said, you know, these tests are one data point. So when we're looking at the results of a self preschool three, for example, we want to look at all the information and ensure that all the data we've collected is representative of the child's functional communication. So if we get to a point where we're looking at the self preschool results and there's a disparity, so for example, it's showing that the child is actually doing quite okay on this assessment because maybe we've provided some scaffolding, we've repeated items when we shouldn't have been repeating items, we've used an interpreter, um, and those results are potentially inflated and they're showing the child is performing better than what everyone else is um, reporting in terms of the academic environment or at home, then we can go, hmm, something hasn't gone quite right in this assessment process. So either the child's not represented or we've misadministered the assessment. We haven't followed those strict standardization guidelines. Now, of course, we're in the helping profession. We want to do the best by the student. We want to get the best possible performance out of the student. However, when we're assessing, we need to remember that we need to follow strict assessment protocols to ensure that the results we're getting are valid and reliable. Now, having said that, we're working with that referral base and sometimes the children will give us interesting responses and things that don't appear in the manual, on the record form, but they're culturally appropriate for that student and the community they live in. So therefore, we can assign them a score. Um, however, if we are finding that we need to modify a test for whatever reason or a test item for whatever reason, that's okay because we want to get the best possible performance and at the end of the day we want to know exactly where the areas of development are so we can provide targeted therapy. However, if we've modified an item or a series of items or a subtest, um, we need to document exactly what we've done and why we've done it and then we cannot use the normative data. You can use that lovely, rich, qualitative data, but then at the end of the day, we need to go, okay, why are we assessing? Why have we chosen the self preschool three? And are we going to get more information from this? Or 
Do we already have enough information? Now, sometimes, depending on the policies and the reason for assessing, we do need to administer certain assessments. But then we need to stick to the strict standardization guidelines. And it's okay if the child bombs the test because we have that important data to go, given these strict parameters of the assessment, um, this is how the student performed. Then we start unpacking where they've broken down in the communication and where their greatest area of need is. So that's actually a good thing because if they're struggling with you in that one-on-one environment, um, it's a nice safe space to really show that they are struggling and they're in the right place because we're here to help them. So don't, I know it's hard, we all have bleeding hearts and this is why we do what we do because we, you know, we want to help, we want the best of our little people. Um, but it's okay if they're bombing out in front of you because you're there to help and rather know what's going on for them um, so we can help them in their learning environment. And then from there, if we've programmed, well, A, if we've assessed appropriately, we can provide targeted therapy and intervention and then we expect to see great progress quite quickly and if we're not seeing that we need we're not seeing that quick progress Um, it's a time for us to go back and reflect on what went wrong in our assessment what have we missed is there something else going on for the child that we've missed but that's really important stick to the procedure get those results see where the gaps are provide targeted therapy, and we should see an improvement quite quickly. And that improvement, you know, might not be in the standard scores over the next 6 to 12 months. Um, What I'm talking about are those behavioural changes that within a matter of weeks we see the child is more engaged, they're able to attend a little bit better, mums and dads are saying, oh, they're remembering to, you know, pack their shoes away or pack their lunchbox and they're not forgetting their homework um, and they just seem more engaged in that learning process. That's the stuff that excites me and that's when we know we are really making a difference. You've mentioned that there are instances where you wouldn't use the normative data uh, of the assessment, but would rely on the qualitative data that you've obtained. Uh, can you give us some examples of that or, or talk about you know how that might work? Yes, and thanks for asking that clarifying question, Nathan. Um, two things. One, if for whatever reason we need the standardized data, and I'm talking about NDIS funding applications, any other funding applications that the organization you're working for requires of you and it's really important that we have the assessment data Um, so we kind of bumble through (laughs) the assessment to get the assessment data Um, first and foremost stick to the standardization procedures so that we can rely on the normative data to be reflective of the student's performance so that's what I recommend go through and do it strictly in accordance with administration directions. Then go back and either repeat, allow extra time, um, whatever you feel is important to tease out. If you provided extra support, extra explanation, whatever scaffolding is needed from the student. So in the examiner's manual, each section that details 
what is expected of each subtest. At the end of that is something called extension testing. And this is where we can drill a little bit deeper and provide the extra support. So that becomes your qualitative information then. So we've, we've done the right thing by everyone getting the data, the hardcore data out, but then we also want to know what works for the student. And I do recommend if you've got the time in your session to tease that out there and then, because those will become your strategies for therapy and support at home and in the classroom. So extension testing is important. So we've been talking about assessment for children who speak a minoritized English or speak a language other than English. I wanted to ask specifically, when a speech pathologist is asked to assess an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander child, what are the considerations uh, they should make when using the self preschool three? Yes, Nathan, we get asked that a lot, and I know a lot of our clinicians are faced with that. Um, and I always say I'm not the expert in, in, in this field, but what I do recommend is that we really engage the community in this process. So tying back to getting as much information as the student as possible, we want to engage the community, we want to talk to the community leaders, the students, teachers, the students, parents, um, and maybe engage an elder or an advocate in the community and really sit and understand what is the point of this assessment? Why do we want to go through this process? What's the outcome going to look like? And we ask the community to help us with the assessment process. Because although in our standardized data, we do have representation of who is in our general population, they're still a minoritized group and we don't specifically have normative data for our indigenous populations. So my recommendation is always engage in the community, school community, the wider community and help them help you to collect that data. And, you know, it seems like the cultural and linguistic responsiveness of tests like the self preschool three is largely related to the speech pathologist's understanding of the test and the child's community and how to analyze the data. Uh, so can you talk a bit about the knowledge and skills that a speech pathologist should have to administer and interpret the self preschool three in a culturally and linguistically responsive way? Yeah, great question. So as speech is engaged in particular communities, we do get to know our population quite well. Um, so it's really important that A, as a speechy, you're familiar with that linguistic population, the culture, um, you have experience working with them, you're really connected with the school community, the greater community. So that's the most important, in my opinion. Then, of course, when we're pulling out a standardized assessment, we have to be very familiar with the administration protocol and procedures. Why do I say that? Because we don't want to be sitting in an assessment scenario where we, as the speechy, are so focused on what comes next, how do I do this assessment? We don't want to be in that space at all because it then is not a nice process for anyone, especially for you as the clinician, because you feel you're fumbling and bumbling your way through. We want to be in a space where we're so relaxed and this is just intuitive and a nice process for everyone. 
a relaxed process for everyone. And where our head needs to be is observing the student. How are they interacting with me as the speechy? How are they interacting with the stimuli in front of them? How are they just behaving in general? Are they able to sit and attend? Are they nice and relaxed? Are they repeat, asking for repeats all the time? Are they self-correcting all the time? That's where our head needs to be. So when we're learning a new assessment, flick through the manual, understand the main um, administration directions for the main subtests, if not all the subtests, watch um, that introductory webinar, you know, really do a lot of self-study. And then, of course, practice administration a few times on a typically developing child. Your own child, spouses make great guinea pigs. And, you know, who doesn't love a bit of one-on-one -on -one attention? So I recommend practicing that assessment. Self-preschool, if you're a super user of the P2, maybe two or three assessments of the preschool three, even though it has a similar look and feel, it is still a new test. And I want everyone to be really comfortable administering it. Um, so know the community really well, know the child, know where they fit in that community, and then be very comfortable in the administration process. Thanks. Yeah, and you mentioned that there are resources in the manual for uh, understanding what culturally appropriate responses might be. Yeah, that's right. Um, with all standardized tests, they standardize largely on a typically developing population. Yes, we've got clinical cases in our normative data for the cell five and the preschool three. Um, however, not every response that has ever been given is reflected in that. Ever been given in the standardization? Yes, of course. Um, but we work with a referral base. So how often are we sitting there with a little person who's struggling with their language and they give you a response that makes absolute sense <laughs> given their environment? And you go, oh, but that's not in the record form. So this is where it's important. That's why we still have a job, right? Because it's up to us using our lovely um, education experience and our expertise, our clinical judgment that we bring to this process, where if a student is giving you a response you go, oh, that is interesting. Um, it makes sense. It's culturally appropriate. I've understood the message. I'm going to score them as correct. Because if we're being too strict and saying, well, it's not in the record form, it's not in the examiner's manual, I can't give that as a response, we're potentially not going to get data that is reflective of their functional communication. So that's really important. But of course, you can always reach out to your colleagues and say, hey, what do you think of this response? Um, and if it's really, really a tricky one and it stumped you, of course, you know, you can reach out to me. I'm, I'm a nice third party to go, well, given the situation, I probably wouldn't score it correct for these reasons or vice versa. Absolutely score that as appropriate because it makes sense. The other thing to bear in mind is um, we have time guidelines for responses. Always think about a 10-second guideline. I'm not suggesting we sit there with a stopwatch, but it is important that we allow the student enough space and time, and 10 seconds is a long time. Remember, we are assessing fundamental oral language skills. We expect the responses to be automatic. So if the student is not responding within that time, it's a zero, 
make a note of that they didn't respond in about the 8 to 10 second mark and move on. And again, we like to keep that functional. Always think of it functional. If you're in a social situation, for example, um, and you walk up to someone and you ask how you are, and, you know, Nathan takes 10 seconds to respond to me, I'm really not going to be that patient. I'm going to walk on and find another friend to play with, right? So that's that's what we need to keep in mind. In um, a classroom situation where a teacher asks you a question and you look at her for 10 seconds, she's going to think, oh, you don't know the answer because you don't know the answer and ask someone else. So that's no different for the assessment process. And remember, it's fundamental oral language skills. And like I said earlier, if they're struggling with you, it's sad that they're struggling with you, It's but it's good that you're uncovering it so that you can provide the supports necessary. There's a reason the student is sitting in front of you, right? Hmm. Yeah, I want to circle back now and uh, talk about some of the components of the self preschool three, one of the big updates that you mentioned is the connected speech subtest. Uh, can you talk a bit about how the subtest uh, adds to or supports uh, the overall assessment? Yes, great question. Thank you, Nathan. Um, for me, that's one of the most exciting additions to the self preschool three. I felt, and I think as a speech-language community, we felt that we didn't have a nice, neat little narrative assessment that was, you know, all encompassed in our self-family products. Um, and the beauty of working so closely with the speech-language community and the test developers in the U.S., we can feed all your feedback through to the test developers and the authors, and they take that on board, as we've seen with the self-preschool and all the changes that have happened. Um, and now we have a connected speech sample. That's a lovely, it's criterion referenced, but it's still important because it's a lovely subtest embedded in the standardized assessment where we want to look at how the child is communicating in that social language context and it gives us that narrative. Um, so we do have a resource available. It's called the Connected Speech Sample Webinar. Um, a colleague and I put that together um, and it is available. I do recommend that it is worthwhile, A, swatting the section on Connected Speech Sample in the examiner's manual and then watching the webinar and practicing that a few times. I say maybe three or four times, administer it transcribe it and score it and it gives us that additional information in terms of how the child is going in that storytelling context um, and there's a nice easy to follow scoring matrix um, in the self preschool three and we do have that webinar that takes you through it yeah. thanks and you know the connected speech subtest is another point of data in this body of converging evidence that we're trying to you know, find on this this child that we're assessing. That's right, absolutely. Um, how do you compare the data from the CSS to other components of the evaluation? Well, my recommendation is always, you have the student in front of you, you have access to this lovely test, you've committed to purchasing it, learning the assessment, use all the subtests at your disposal. If if possible. So we want our core language, we want the usual index scores. As I said, we've got the academic and the emergency, emergent literacy index score. Now we've got the additional social language component. So we've got our pragmatics profile, which is now standardized, new to the self 
preschool three, but not the cell five. So our cell five users will remember we've got the pragmatics activities checklist. Um, so if we're using all that, especially if the referral question is around social communication, um, there we can get away with administering the core language score and then really focusing on that social language. And that's an important reminder. When we're looking at the assessment process, we want to understand the referral question. Is the assessment process going to be able to answer that referral question? And why? really, it's why are we assessing, right? And if the referral question is that social communication, focus on that. And the self, um, the self preschool three, has all that new data for us to administer and interpret. And it gives you this lovely overview of just how they're going um, in that social context. So that's really important. Use as much as you can of the self-preschool. It might take a little bit longer, but it'll set you up for at least the next year to two years in terms of accurate, targeted programming. Hmm. And, you know, and you mentioned the pragmatics checklist, and I wanted to ask you about the descriptive pragmatics profile, um, which measures verbal and nonverbal social communication. Correct. Uh, yeah. How does assessment of these skills interact with a neurodiversity affirming approach to services in a time when many practitioners are moving away from teaching social skills? Well, with neurodiversity affirming approach, we want to make sure, A, as I've said, we want to get the best performance out of that student and we want to meet the student where they're at. So it's a perfect opportunity in that assessment process to really understand, collect the data and really then interpret and analyse where their greatest area of need is. And we know that social communication is as important as oral communication. So even though we're not explicitly teaching social communication skills anymore, or there's a, a movement away from it, it's still, in my opinion, really important to encompass all the oral and communication skills into what we do as speech language pathologists and how we support that student to be the very best in their learning environment. Because we know when they find it easier, it's a snowball effect. They're engaging easier with the curriculum, with the content. They're engaging easier with their peers. And it, overall, it's just a nicer experience for them because we want to create those engaging, curious learners. And it's our role to kind of unpack how we do that for them and how we get them engaged. So social communication, in my opinion, is, is really a key ingredient to that process as well. Hmm. Yeah. One, I wonder, you know, when we think about things like the, the double empathy problem, yep. where we're helping the people around uh, an autistic child to understand their communication. Um, I, you know, I wonder if data like that can help us to, you know, describe rather than pathologize the those behaviors. Um, but then, you know, I, I would assume that the way that we report and talk about the data that we receive would be important to that process. Yeah, absolutely. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that the data we have, we as the clinician, because um, again, I say our clinical judgment is key to interpreting how this information is going to impact the child. So working with the student 
as the key person in this process and ensuring that others around the student know and understand where their greatest area of need is and how they function. It's our it's our role to ensure that the student is performing at his or her best, their their best performance, and that the support people around that student understand why they do things the way they do, and we engage with a support community in how to interact and bring out the best in that student at all times. Before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts you would like to share? Um, Just a reminder to everyone, we have lots of resources available. Um, So remember, make use of um, the Pearson Clinical website. Um, Under each of the products, we've got FAQs, webinars, technical information, tips and tricks. So make sure you access those. Remember to swat the manual. Um, I'm not suggesting read it as a novel, but, you know, pick out those key areas that you need to focus on. Really get your head around administration of the different subtests, where you allowed a repetition, how you um, report a self-correction, for example. Um, are they allowed? Remember the timeline, the general timeline response allowed, which is around the 10 seconds, 8 to 10 seconds. Um, Pearson Clinical has its own YouTube channel. So find Pearson Clinical on YouTube. Pearson Assessments is our US um, channel, but lovely, lovely freebies there as well. Lovely resources. And then access the Connected Speech Sample webinar from our Pearson Academy website. If you can't find it, just, you know, where to find me, just reach out. Um, But any questions, concerns, you know, you can always reach out to any one of us here at Pearson and we're more than happy to help. And we love hearing from you. Well, Angela Kinsella, thank you for speaking with us today. It's been wonderful to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nathan. It's been great chatting. And to our listeners, Thank you for being with us. Join us next week for another episode of Speak Up. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.